Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Bourdain, and you're listening to The Trip, a new podcast for my partners at Roads and Kingdoms. The Trip is your passport to all things weirder, deeper, further. Each episode, a different Roads and Kingdoms contributor will take you behind the scenes of a reporting trip somewhere in the world with host Nathan Thornburg from Roads and Kingdoms. The Trip. Get ready for the ride. What is your name? Who are you? What do you do? Um, my name is Anup Kafle. I'm a journalist. I uh, focus on foreign news, um, international reporting. So you are Nepali? I am Nepali, yes. Born and bred. Born, Born and, and bred, yes. Um, I came to America in 2003 to, to study. You know, I basically try to go home once a year, uh, either for reporting or to sort of just, you know, meet family, get married, which happened once. <laughs> it's not a recurring, hey, let's go back and get married. Uh, um, congratulations. Thank you. My parents live um, in a town called Pokhara, which is about six-hour drive outside of uh, Kathmandu. Pokhara is a town I was born in, I grew up in. Uh, I lived there for 16 years. This, like, beautiful, small valley frequented by tourists from all over the world. And these days, it's sort of commercialized a little bit. They have paragliding, para-hawking, where you fly with a hawk. That's the oh. thing? Are you on the hawk? It's or? a thing. No, you're actually parachuting, but you, you have a glove on your hands, and you sort of stretch it out, and then a hawk comes and flies with you, sits on your hand. It's pretty cool. I haven't done it, but I've sort of seen my friends do it. That sounds nuts. Can you do that with other animals, like para-gerbiling? No, just I mean this. Like, was, this was actually started by Westerners. Play. So, so <laughs> it definitely sounds like something that <laughs> would be started by yeah. Westerners. So you've got a lot of you know. You grew up in an environment where you look overhead, a shadow like comes zooming along the ground. Look up, and there's a there's a Norwegian flying with a hawk <laughs> <laughs> over so your. Th town. This only started recently, actually. Like you know, when I grew up, it was mostly sort of growing up to seeing these pristine mountains. So people come to Pokhara to sort of see the reflection of those mountains on the lake. It's known for that. It sounds terrible. <laughs> Not a bad way to grow up. And food is really kind of at the, at the heart of that, I guess. Tell me a little bit about kind of what was cooking like in your home. Cooking in my house was always sort of like a festival. A typical Nepali meal is rice, dal, lentils, like yellow lentil, uh, some kind of vegetable. And, you know, depending on what sort of level of society you come from, maybe meat. Um, and then some kind of like pickle, which we call chutney. There was fish, there was chicken. Um, my dad mostly specialized in meats and sort of like, you know, oily, greasy sort of vegetables and that kind of stuff. My mom, you know, spent a lot of time with spices and cooked slowly and like these elaborate long meals. 
But if you ever needed like a fried chop just thrown on top of all that, your dad was there. My dad was there. He was he was the he was the man to go to. My dad would single-handedly cook two goats. And my grandfather did the same. This religious holiday, it's called Dashrani, like a 10-day, sort of like Christmas for, for Nepalis, where we worship goddess Kali. On the eighth day, one of the goats was offered to this goddess, right? And then you have to live the... Uh, you, you bring the body back, but the head is sort of like, you know, left at the temple. And on the 10th day, the final day, um, you can bring the head back to your house. So even after we're done cooking these two goats, then the head is finally home. And my dad would sort of sit there carving this head out then like preparing soup from the head which we ate with beaten rice it was incredible mm. just just garlic onion and like sort of like this sauteed goat head yeah i mean i listen i i'm fully aware that some of our listeners will just be like what the fuck is that <laughs> like testicle amus bush and a head soup but i'm telling you just just believe us like when you've had some of those types of uh yeah i mean that's that's the thing it's it's, it's so much better than you could even ever imagine I, I don't understand why people think it's okay to eat foie gras but not goat head I feel like we met on this corner of uh, Twitter that's I could call like goat Twitter, <laughs> right? Where like people are very enthusiastic about the uh, the raising and cooking of goats. Um, right. I, I my uncle was a goat farmer. I used to write about cooking goat, and you are a prolific kind of advocate of goat uh, meats, goat and, eating, yes, and goat eating, which uh, uh, is you know it's a niche, but it's out there. You guys should check it out. Goat Twitter. Um, very for me very hunger inducing uh feels validating i think goat meat is the most delicious you know meat you were right um there is history in the kafle clan with goats so my grandfather's father he used to apparently according to my grandmother have 25 to 30 goats at any time in the house and i asked her like how big was the the shed the goat and she 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 pointed to one of these quarters in the house and showed him it was like it was like a two-bedroom house mm. a single story sort of like two-bedroom thing made out of wood and apparently what my grandfather's father did was whether it's night day if he if he wanted meat he would get his men to sort of go kill a goat and then just prepare it so they would fry goat in cumin coriander ghee and then store them in these clay pots and put them by these uh irrigation canals because paddy fields in you know in the village so they used to put those earthen pots there so the meat stayed cold for a couple of weeks so huh. they whenever they wanted you go out there take a heap of uh, goat meat come back sort of like heat it up boom eat and that was my grandfather's father <laughs> so you just like old school goat pantry old school goat pantry then we started eating mountain goats when we moved to pokhara because uh pokhara was sort of like this point where people from the Mustang region, which is sort of bordered with Tibet. Mm -hmm. They used to start, the farmers would bring these mountain goats from the mountains down to Pokhara. And, you know, mountain goats more leaner, more delicious. And we started like, you know, falling in love with mountain goat meat. <laughs> um, and here I am. I moved to America. Didn't fight goat for the longest time because I went to school in Tennessee. No goats, which should have an amazing goat culture, but that's another <laughs> that's another story. If, if um, people just got past the stigma, man. Um, but when I moved to New York for grad school, I was just like, "Holy shit, this is great!" 
because there is a vibrant sort of goat eating culture. You know, you could go to Jackson Hyde and eat goat meat at Nepali Bengali restaurants, or you could go to Brooklyn to Pakistani butchers and buy any part of goat you wanted. Or, yeah, like Sings out in Ozone Park has got the Trinidadian goat thing, that Caribbean mix. Yeah, Jamaicans are into I mean, listen, this is a a good town for goat if you got to do it. It's a good town for goat. Yeah. So that's very much a part of of your childhood is is specifically that that kind of protein, but also garlic, right? If you were cooking meat, garlic was an integral part of it. Like, you wouldn't cook meat without garlic. And I remember my mom used to grow garlic in our kitchen garden and a heap of garlic, fresh garlic, like just peeling and then sort of like chopping or sort of mincing them along with uh, ginger, cauliflower and potatoes, garlic, spinach, garlic. Every meal, there is garlic. Then I go home in 2007. No meat in the house, no garlic, no onion. Completely banned. What happened? What the hell happened? We're going to take a quick break from our story and take you on a short side trip to Manhattan's Lower East Side with a New York Minute presented by Tiger Beer. Angela DeMayuga recounts a childhood dream that started her culinary journey. I cooked really, really early on. As a child, I would wake up early mornings on Saturdays to watch PBS cooking shows instead of cartoons and kind of stayed on that path somehow. In college, when I was taking my philosophy 101 class, I would hear about these philosophers and had this like visceral feeling of like doors being opened when all that information was being dropped on me. And then I could think about cooking again from that angle. And that's what I ended up doing. I would have my own mantras as a line cook, like I want to be more precise and efficient with my movements. And it was just a thing that nobody taught me, but something that made my day to day more interesting for me. And the image that I had of myself at 10, I never thought that it could be as complex as this because there's this quest for knowledge that you can't really ever satisfy. You could never be perfect, but you could always think about new ways to do things. And that makes it really fun. And I think it gives you real opportunity. That was your Tiger Beer Lower East Side Minute. Now back to the trip. Strap in. Tell me about your parents' evolution on this thing from these childhood memories of goat and garlic. So so I came to America in 2003. Even until the day I left, you know, I remember having a nice hearty meal that involved garlic, meat. You know, then I head to the airport. I'm in America. I don't go home for three and a half years. Then I go home in 2007. And... I realized my my home like transformed into a temple. There are these religious prayer flags. Uh, there is a separate room for worshiping. We already had, you know, a, a sort of like a worship room, but then this was a bigger room devoted to this spiritual movement that my parents were following. Um, the movement was called Om Shanti. 
it's it's not promoting sort of religious beliefs, but it's sort of like promoting the idea of uh, giving yourself to God, spirituality, meditating. The biggest thing in that thing is meditating, staying pure and meditating. So basically, no meat in the house, no garlic, no onion, completely banned. So we're Hindus, but um, you know, Hinduism. Hinduism is a complicated religion. Uh, even in Hinduism, there are people who sort of focus on specific gods or spiritual movements, and so you know, we were Hindus. We worshipped gods, but we still ate meat and cooked with garlic and onion and ginger and all kinds of stuff. Uh, now there are, you know, within Hinduism, there are people who will never touch garlic and onion. Mostly because they think it, you know, they have these these, these herbs have these properties that make you uh, lazy, like you know, not not able to focus, and they are known as impure herbs that do not offer to God. So, so even my parents during rituals, you wouldn't cook with garlic and onion on that day, even when you were a child. Even when I was a child, yes. And is there a scriptural? like backdrop for that like where or is it just kind of received wisdom through a lot of different sources it's it's received wisdom but here is sort of like you know what uh, there are a bunch of stories in hinduism about where garlic comes from why you can use it and why you can't use it so there is there is this uh story about churning the ocean where this holy potion comes from the ocean and uh, lord vishnu is giving this potion to gods and avoiding demons. He doesn't want to give it to demons because this basically makes you immortal. You immortal. Okay. And then um, two demons come in that line, and then he pours this potion into the mouth of this demon, and then the gods basically tell Vishnu, oh, those are demons. So he immediately cuts this demon's head off. And what happens is this, you know, this, this potion sort of falls and then it becomes garlic. That's where garlic grows oh, from. Oh, delicious. It's, so, so, so what happens? So there are two things happening r- right here. So basically, A, it's actually uh, this divine sort of thing, potion, but then also it's come in contact with demons. So if you're actually a Brahmin, which... Your family is Brahmin. Yes, I'm from a Brahmin family. In Hinduism, Brahmins are known to be sort of like these top elite sort of class of people. You don't touch garlic and onion because it has associations with the demon. And that's, there's an extra kind of um, uh, burden of spirituality. Right. Ostensibly. I, that, that's, that's, hot. that's the best way to put it because you, you sort of like, you know, you, you sort of believe that you have to carry certain tenets of like Hinduism. You have to take them more seriously. So if, if this if this ingredient has just even a touch of demon breath on it like then then you have to you have to pay attention to that right i would say that's a pretty good phenomenological description of garlic it is both things it is the worst thing and the best thing it's the worst thing and the best thing and you know i mean even in ayurveda which has its roots in hinduism uh, you know, talk about food or basically any sort of elements there are three kinds um, you know they call it uh, sattvic Rajasik and Tamasik. And Rajasik 
it's bitter, sour, salty, pungent. And then they believe it's thought to promote sensuality, greed, jealousy, anger, and delusion. That's one element. The date, other one... Date night. <laughs> the other one is tamasic. And uh, basically the food in these categories are dry, old, foul, unpalatable, and thought to promote pessimism, ignorance, laziness, and doubt. Election day. <laughs> and then, and then the third, like the, the, the more sort of pious one is called sattvic. When, you know, a lot of yogis, for example, people who take uh, yoga seriously, like they believe in like having sattvic sort of meal. That, that means like fresh, juicy, light, nourishing, which kind of gives your body energy, helps you achieve balance. So... That's a very, I just came from California yesterday. That, <laughs> that's that entire state slogan right there. Right? So, so my parents, they believe that garlic and onion are both the, the, the top two, tamasic and rajasic. So basically, it makes you lazy. Garlic's sort of known as a natural aphrodisiac. It sort of like in, promotes sensuality, greed. Your body sort of becomes hot and you just have bad thoughts. So if you are sort of like devoted to... God, yeah. you're meditating, you're supposed to think about God, then these things do not help you and you shouldn't eat them. This kind of myth-making around garlic is not unique even to Hinduism, you know. I yeah. think Egyptians grew it and they had given it to the slaves and part of it was like it was supposed to give them power to do work and the Romans, of course, loved garlic because all of these things you're talking about, sort of right. laziness and sensuality, were very highly esteemed. Right. <laughs> In, but like it was interesting, like you know, as I was doing research, I came across this this poem by Horace. He compares it to hemlock. Mm. Like he thinks garlic. You know, I mean, he he said he has this line about garlic more baneful than hemlock. <laughs> hemlock does result in immediate death. Right. Uh, garlic, you know, bad breath and delicious. slow death. <laughs> slow. <laughs> yes. Maybe immediate spiritual death. But I guess that's the. That's right. the veil that we can't really quite see uh, see across. My home was, like I said, it had sort of become a temple in itself. Known as this sort of like, you know, it's a pious place where nobody brings meat in the house. Nobody brings any garlic. We don't grow garlic anymore. We don't grow onions anymore. We don't buy, like, you know, you only cook with other herbs. That's a big change. That's uh, a huge change. For you, did you did you fight this? Did you, do you get into arguments uh, about it? Do you accept it because you're so far away usually? I think I was disappointed not because of the choice they made, but because I knew that I would never be able to eat that incredible meal that I remember as I grew up. Like, I knew that was over. So I was sad. I was very sad. I wasn't angry because my parents weren't telling me to follow what they were doing. They never told me, don't eat garlic, don't eat meat, you have to stop too. They were just like, this is what we're doing. So in the house, you know, we're not going to have it. I was like, okay. My parents came here after I finished grad school and they stayed with me for about two months. So we're living in the same house now. They don't eat things that 
you know, this is like, that I've used to prepare. It's like Hindu kosher. Yeah, like it's you like need different sets. So of I cookware. went and like bought new set of pots and pans for mom. So what I did one day when they were here in New York, hey, like I really miss the goat meat food that you guys made for me. Can you cook for me? And my mom was just like, no, we're not going to touch it. And my dad was just like, well, he really wants it. So maybe I can make it for you without touching it. So you do all of the cutting and, you know, whatever. I will guide you. It was actually a very emotional moment for me. That was the first time I actually paid attention to how my dad was doing. I'd cook goats. I knew how to make them. Like, I'd watched my parents sort of do it. But that was my opportunity to sort of learn very seriously how they did it. Two, three hours in the kitchen, my dad was guiding me. But you had the sense, like, this is the last time. I didn't know when was the next time my parents were going to come here. I knew even if I went home that that was never going to happen in my house. Props to you for putting your father in the position of having sort of to thread the needle between love of son and love of God. (laughs) When I go home now, even till this day, he will come up to me and say, don't tell mom, but if you want some dried mountain goat, I can get it for you. (laughs) So So I'm smuggling dried mountain. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but you know, my dad is like my secret source for dried mountain goat. And he's opened up a black market in his own household uh, for well, for you. He tells me where to go or he keeps it outside the premises of the house. He's, I mean, my mom is very serious about not bringing anything in the house. Ah, incredible. But during my wedding, I wanted meat, you know, be served in the party. And for a second, we actually discussed because my parents were like, no, how about we don't do meat? How about we do like a sattvic, like this pure sort of like feast. I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm getting married once in my life (laughs) and we're going to have goat. We're going to have a proper sort of, you know, garlic infested, (laughs) you know, feast. Um, And they were, they were fine with that. Uh, That's, yeah, that's, it's good, man. This is, this is a process of growing up. You're like, I appreciate you giving me the life, but it's mine now. Exactly. (laughs) And it's going to involve a goat, uh, goat focused marriage. Yeah. How does your mom cook now these days? What is, what's it like in a world, a post-garlic world? The post-garlic world, like I've gotten more used to it, but when I go home, I kind of feel like I wish we had that one meal that would take me back to my childhood. It's not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and I asked my parents, I was like, don't you miss being a bit more involved in preparing your, you know, garlic and smashing them in this like mortar and pestle and she was like you know we we had it for 50 years we enjoyed it now that we've left it we don't even remember what it was like there's no reason to but what i do is i call my dad i was like hey so what was that recipe help me so they will tell me yeah my mom is more hesitant my mom will refuse to sort of talk about it won't even discuss yeah i think like you know she she feels that even sort of thinking about it Mm brings impure thoughts. My dad, on the other hand, is more compassionate about sort of my emotional well-being. And I think he understands what what that sort of meant to me. Well, I I like to call up alcoholics that have uh, (laughs) stopped drinking and ask them how to make a good stiff martini. 
<laughs> Just a test. Right. How that's going. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it does feel like a, it feels like a little bit of this like sponsor, uh, you know, twelve step relationship in their in their temple where they're just like, we're here, we're here to help. Right. Call us at night if if you're feeling tempted by garlic, right? Uh, to help settle you down. I mean, you're you're at a point you like you said you just moved back from London for a long time. You're kind of at a crossroads, uh, setting up a new life here in New York. Do you is there any part of your mind that's ever like, you know, like these are these are big times. I got big decisions ahead of me. Maybe, maybe if I did just dial back on the garlic, like maybe I would just get that extra little bit of focus. Or you just like that's just a, a, a point of view, a perspective you can't even have a dalliance with. I feel like I need garlic and meat to sort of carry me forward. And if and if your parents aren't going to do it, and they're not going to keep those old traditions, and goddamn it, you're going to get do it. it done. I mean, I I want to introduce. I feel like I have a responsibility to pass this on because, hmm. I mean, what the, the meat that my father cooked, the, these vegetables and like, you know, dishes that my mom made were like special. They tasted very different. Everybody in this extended family praised my mom and my dad's cooking. So I feel like I need to keep it alive. The mantle is around your shoulders now. I mean, one day I hope if I can sort of like, you know, say have a house upstate somewhere, I can sort of see myself doing what my grand grandfather did, like raising goats, feeding it like rice and ghee and fattening it up to throw sort of like a feast one day. Oh, man. Yeah. Anoop, let's just stay in touch, man. <laughs> let's just just stay connected. When that happens, uh, I'm going to be there. I'm going to bring the rest of goat Twitter with me, and we're going to crash your farm. We'll cook some goat. We'll just tell the gods to take a little holiday because <laughs> it's about to get real demonic in there. The Trip is produced and edited by Josie Holtzman and mixed by Dan Rosado. Original theme music by Dan the Automator. Additional music in this episode by Glass Boy. Our podcast artwork is by Adele Rodriguez. Special thanks to Anoop Kapfle and the mountain goats that nourished him. I want to thank Matt Goulding and especially Anthony Bourdain for rolling so deep with Roads and Kingdoms and with this podcast. The next season of Tony's show, Parts Unknown, is airing on CNN this April. I've seen most of the episodes, and they are so very, very good. This is the last episode of season one of The Trip. We'll be back in the fall, so don't lose our number. It has been a genuine pleasure. Yes, world from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Went, and I'm Rick Schwartz, and we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.